You're listening to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm your host, Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Specht. The last couple weeks we've been uh, all over the news is Fort McMurray, the big forest fires that are going on. Uh, as canoe trippers, campers, and whatnot, having a campfire at the end of the day to, to sit around, discuss the day's events, or to cook your meal, it's a big thing when you're out, out in, the, in the wilderness um, camping and, and say canoe tripping and that. And this year, I think, is going to be a bad year for it. Already, Alberta has issued a province-wide fire ban. And that's early spring. That's unusual. And that, yeah, that's that's early spring. That is very unusual. And I mean, there's a lot of fires going on. Apparently, there's north of Calgary, even there's a fire. Uh, Fort McMurray, of course, is, is the big one. Yeah. And it's even heading farther north, right? Um, a big one that also hits home for me is because I, I've been there is Woodland Caribou Provincial Park. It's on the border of Ontario and Manitoba and is burning both sides of the border. But 75, last I heard, 75,000 hectares of forest are gone. Um, and, and a lot of this is through areas I've been through. And it, it's it's devastating to see the damage and what's lost. Now, I've also been through the area in Woodland Caribou where there's a fire a few years previous. And you start seeing everything coming back up. But we really need to keep an eye on what we're doing with our fire pits now. Exactly. It, like a small mistake with a campfire and, and you end up with a spreading fire and the tragedy of a fire, like you, of course, the forest burn, but especially in uh, the Fort McMurray area, people are losing their homes. And and you can understand the, the regrowth and regeneration of the forest with a normal forest fire, but it's really hard to accept the potential of, uh, of somebody making a mistake with their campfire or whatnot and, and burning homes and cottages. It's, uh, it's something that we should all be aware of, that when there is fire bans or, or if they caution with dry wood, wooded areas, that really you should be careful. And only, only uh, having your fire on designated campfire pits and uh, hardened areas that are, that are meant for these things. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a difference between a natural started fire, like lightning strike, something like that, and a, and a human started fire. And yeah, especially, I mean, if you're in in an area, you may think you're out in the wilderness. I mean, you, you know, say you're up north of Fort McMurray and you accidentally start a fire, but look what's happened with the wind starts picking up and it's just out of control. You really, really have to pay attention to what you're doing. And if they're saying it's a fire ban, then go buy that. Yes. And that's, that's, that's why we always take in our stoves, you know, our little portable stoves for cooking if need be. I mean, if it pours rain and you can't get a fire started, at least you're not going to starve because you got something to, to boil water, cook your meals over. But if they're saying no fires at all, then, then don't do it. You got to use your stove, be smart about it. Because as we're seeing, I mean, huge, huge amounts of forest are gone. You know, people have, like you say, people have lost their homes, their businesses, everything. Uh, some of the oil. Um, yeah, some of the oil sands facilities and fields are, are being threatened now by the forest fire in, at, near Fort McMurray. Yeah, and that's that's huge. I mean, that's people's livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's... it's yeah, it's going to happen naturally, like you say, with fire or uh, lightning strikes and whatnot. But as as campers and whatnot, we really have to uh, keep an eye on what we're doing ourselves. And we don't want to be the cause for a forest fire. No, no. And we've we've been or know people even that have been on canoe trips and have seen, you know, somebody didn't put out a, a fire properly, and you know they've they've moved a fire pit and the the roots under. The, the pit where they moved it to yeah. have caught fire and they travel. The fire will, you know, travel along the roots of, of a tree underground and boom, it springs up farther, you know, outside the fire ring, uh, your fire pit ring. And now you've got a problem and you, you really got to, it's not something to fool around with when it comes to fire. I mean, that's one of my biggest phobias is, is the fires. I love having a fire. I love sitting around the fire and 
cooking over the fire and, you know, you sit there adjusting the wood and whatnot in the fire. But when you, when you're seeing it outside and I mean, we've seen the news, we've seen the, the pictures, the video of cars driving down the highway and the fire on both sides. I mean, yeah, it's that's devastating. Just, yeah, it really is. So I've talked to a few people about fire pits and, and it's most for both from, for the most part, quite a few people do understand the risks of, of moving a fire pit. But I, once or twice I've come across people where you talk to them about, oh, you shouldn't move the fire pit type thing. And they go, well, you know, my fire pit, it didn't have a good view of the lake or whatever. It's like, come on. Like the, the designated fire pits that are controlled and, and uh, maintained by park staff, the, these fire pits are on areas that are hardened and fire after fire after fire, there's there's greatly reduced chances of fire spreading underground and spreading outside of the firing area. And you shouldn't move your firing. If, if, if for a better view, that's ridiculous. The risk and the potential devastation to a park or to people's homes and businesses is not worth the moving of the fire pit. No, and I mean... If, if it's found out, I mean, sure, there's legislation went on in place to hold you accountable. Yes, charges will be laid, and, and in some cases, you can be held accountable for the cost of the fire. Yeah, and uh, so you know what? When you're out there, keep an eye out, keep your ears open, check before you go, and find out if there's a fire ban. And if there isn't, be prepared with your with your stove, a couple, little bit of extra fuel just in case, because the last thing we need is is more fire gone or a, a forest gone due to fires. So take it easy out there, be careful, and uh, do what you can to eliminate forest fires. As we're talking about forest fires, uh, we talked about uh, potential of man-made forest fires and uh, nature-made forest fires, like particularly started by lightning. Lightning is uh, particularly dangerous, not just for forest fires, but it's also dangerous to people who are out of doors. I've done a little bit of research. I've looked into this over the last week, and uh, we had mentioned previously about lightning strikes. So the dangers with lightning is uh, I hadn't really thought about it much in my previous camping. It's, oh, oh thunder and lightning. It's always exciting. You, you sit around the campsite and you look at further, far away storms. And I've been very fortunate. I've never been ex directly exposed to a thunder and lightning storm. Or at least so I thought. In my research, it, uh, as it turns out, if you see a thunderstorm or a, a storm cell, lightning can usually strikes outside of that storm cell. It's uh, most of the lightning is at the fringes, and they say. And previously, they said that you know seven to eight kilometers away, you can get hit by lightning. But further studies have indicated that lightning can strike up to twenty kilometers away from a storm cell. Which surprised me, and uh, I you, know, you you feel kind of confident in your location when you're not being rained on, and you see a thunderstorm in the distance. But apparently, the the lightning can strike a great distance from the storm cell itself. So, thunder thunder and lightning it injures people in several ways. Uh, if you go to uh, just Google lightning safety tips, and you come to various American and Canadian uh, lightning safety tip web pages. Uh, a lot of my information I've taken from uh, emergency.cdc.gov, but there's other locations I've found multiple websites that discuss it. So when we're talking about uh, injury to people, there's uh, direct, indirect, and secondary or resultant injuries. And some of the direct impacts are a direct lightning strike, whether that's contact or through the individual themselves, or a splash where the lightning hits a, a tree and the, the electric charge flies out of the tree and, and, and uh, impinges on the person, or blast injuries where lightning hits a tree and the sap in a tree is not very conductive. So when the, that massive bolt of lightning goes through the tree, it heats up very quickly the sap in the tree and the tree blows out. And if you've ever seen a tree that's been blown apart by lightning, you'll see either a vertical slash where the bark has blown off, or you see the tree actually blown apart itself. And the sap turns the steam at that, you know, steam expands about 1,700, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact uh, numbers, but it steam expands very quickly. 
And so you end up with blast injuries where it's uh, bark and tree chunks flying out at you, as well as the electrical shock part. I wouldn't, I never even gave that a thought about the sap, like boiling and exploding. Steam mm -hmm. exploding. And, and that's why you see that huge, it's not the electrical coming out of the tree when you see that vertical slash in the tree and the scars. It's the sap itself that boils at such a high rate that it blows the bark off the tree. Wow. So it's like quickly turned to steam, the sap. Well, and you get a, I mean, in the middle of winter or summer, you get a nice live tree. Exactly. It's filled with, filled with, with water. water and mm -hmm. sap. and. But it's not very conductive. It's, it's mostly wood. So it's, there's, there's a certain impedance, a certain resistance within the tree. And that just, that turns the sap so quickly. Instead of the lightning shunting to ground quickly, it's fighting its way through the tree, which boils the sap. Wow. There's a, and now, so the second uh, injury to people is indirect. This is what you call a ground current or the step potential. So when lightning hits the ground or if lightning hits a tree, the the lightning blankets out and spreads across the ground and this spreading creates a step potential so there's a high impedance in earth and dirt depending how wet or dry the earth is so as the impedance as the electrical charge spreads out from the tree you the electrical charge reduces and drops as it rolls across the surface of the ground or just under the ground so if you're standing or laying on the ground near this you could be joining two different uh, step potentials around this as it travels. So if you if you have your legs spread apart, then one foot is going to be closer and that's going to create, you're going to become the short circuit to the lower step potential on the ground. And so electric, the electricity is going to want to travel up your leg and through your body and down the other leg to get quickly away from the lightning strike source. And surprisingly, that this ground potential, the step potential or indirect strike, this is what causes the majority of lightning injuries and the highest death rate for people who are struck by lightning. It's not the direct strikes, it's this step potential. And uh, I saw quite a few uh, examples of one that really stood out is uh, there was 68 cows standing in a field and the lightning struck and it killed cows up to 100 meters away the step potential of this lightning strike the wet grass and it spread across the field it killed 68 cows and two survived in that herd and those two had full recovery but 68 cows died in the field from the step potential that makes you think about uh, i mean i've been on a few portages that you're going through a big open space tall grass mm -hmm. and if it's morning or or something you know you got to do on the grass exactly whatever. it's that and lightning hits. It wants You're to travel across well. the ground. Yeah. It's, it's kind of scary to think about it. Big time. And uh, so the, there's a third potential injury to people, and that's the secondary or resultant. And this is where it comes to the EMP wave of the giant lightning strike. When it hits the ground or hits a tree, an EMP wave is transmitted through air. And this is where it, it can affect people if they have pacemakers or any electronic devices on their body. That EMP wave can mess up the electronics. And in some, in some, a few cases, it can make a person's heart stop. It depends on where your heart is in the beat. It's susceptible to this EMP wave. And that's very rare, like one in 100,000, one or 2,000 kind of case. It's, it's not as common for... To, but for pacemakers, it's almost a guarantee that EMP wave is going to do something tricky to a person's pacemaker. And so it, back to the middle uh, injury cause is the indirect. So uh, which I talked about where you're standing between those uh, step potential rings away from the, the lightning strike. So they say that you should not lie down and you should not be in a tent. Tents have metal poles, and that's what's one way to transmit the electricity. As well, if you're laying down, you could be joining two step potentials of electricity as this this sheet lightning rolls away across the ground. And this is another common injury uh, for campers and whatnot. If you're sleeping in your tent at night, and if you're, say, water's pooling under your tent, or you're, you don't have a very thick air mattress or whatever, the potential of electricity using your body because there's less impedance it's going to electricity is going to sh shunt through your body as well you know the fact that you have metal poles ringing the tent it's uh, not a very good situation it with with lightning they say that 
there is no safe place outside. But there are some places where if you have no place to find shelter, they say there are certain tricks that you can do to avoid the indirect or the step potential. They say to squat down on the balls of your feet so that the minimal amount of your body is touching the ground and touch your heels together. That way, if there is any step potential, it's very minor amount of electricity that so wants to go through your body. It's going to go up through the balls of your toes, up through your balls of your feet, through your heels, and back down through your other foot. And so they say as well, you don't bunch people together. So don't gather together because then from person to person, that's, there's the step potential and the transfer of electricity through various campers' bodies. So spread out, squat down, heels together, and uh, avoid tall trees. Uh, if you're going to be, if you're trapped in the middle of a field, well, it's, it's kind of tough. You don't want to be standing up in the middle of the field and make yourself that source to ground. But you, so they say they recommend going to a large clump of trees or bushes that's in a gully and it's dry as possible. But really, there's, there's really not too many places outside that's safe. What, well, when you're in a lightning thunderstorm. Yeah. There's not going to be too many dry spots. No, there isn't. There isn't going to be too many dry spots. But, but a lot of people, and often you hear about golfers on golf courses uh, getting getting mm -hmm. hit by lightning. And, well, on golf courses, you have these big single trees that are interspersed across the golf course. So golfers naturally want to get in under the uh, out of the rain, and that puts them right into direct contact with the tall trees and that potential lightning strike that's going to hit the trees. Now, what I think of is... Um, Barren Canyon in Algonquin Park. Mm -hmm. We were traveling up the canyon and a storm hit. And there was nowhere to go. Yeah, there's no safe place. Nowhere to go at all. So we just hunkered over to the side. Yeah. And had to wait it out and hope for the best. I mean, you're going to you're, you're, you're going to be caught in those situations. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, know. you're just hope for the best. Exactly. And that's a, that's a tricky situation. They say that you should avoid, the things you should avoid in a lightning storm is uh, don't stand next to rocky cliffs while the stone, <laughs> exactly, okay, no, no rocky cliffs because the uh, the electricity can roll over the surface of the rocks. Avoid water, avoid <laughs> tall trees. <laughs> we avoided the tall trees because there were none. <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's amazing how many things that in reading up on these uh, lightning safety websites, it's like <laughs> there's so many things out camping and canoeing that you're directly exposing yourself to the risk of lightning if there is. Well, and one of the practices I know is if you're caught in a rainstorm um, at the end of a portage or something, you flip the canoe over and lean it up and sort of stand under yeah, it, right? exactly. As shelter. Yeah. <laughs> under a tree. You're creating, yeah. <laughs> you're creating a short circuit from the tree to the ground under the canoe. <laughs> wow. How are it's, we all still here? <laughs> it's scary, eh? It is. <laughs> I, I, And there's so many of these things I didn't know. I didn't know you couldn't lay on the ground. I never knew about these the the step potential risk as these uh, the rings of the sheet lightning rocketing across the ground. And you're creating a short circuit just by standing on the ground. And it wants to travel through you because it travels through you easier than it does through the ground well and then when you're saying don't stand in groups close to each other you know i mean if you're touching that's the old thing everybody join hands and somebody touches the electric fence <laughs> right and the guy at the end he's getting the, zapped he's getting zapped so yeah. basically the guy at the front end he's you know the the current starts in him and but they go I through everybody. everybody's gonna feel it oh i would think so <laughs> yikes wow <laughs> There's, yeah, we're all doomed. Yeah, we're doomed. And if, if one of the things they say is that there's no safe place outside. It's like, wait a sec. That's where I have all my fun. Don't go outside. <laughs> yes, You're don't doomed. go outside. <laughs> wow. So again, I'm going to, I'm just going to quickly read off. They have a list of stuff here. Worst places to be in a storm. Shelter under a large tree or isolated tree. Trees are the perfect target for lightning. Near water or in water. Don't be in a small shed because it has no plumbing or wiring. The lightning is going to ignore the shed and go right straight through it. Uh, and, it and this is another thing. Picnic area shelters. It's like, well, of course people are going to run to the shelter. Whether you're in a, in a park or athletic field or a golf course, it doesn't have plumbing. It doesn't have wiring. So 
the lightning will ignore the wood of the structure and just go right straight through it, right? And they say the only real safest, or the safest places to be is inside a house. And if you're in a house, you avoid any electrical wiring, switches, wired phones. You avoid all that stuff because when the lightning hits a house, it's going to go right through the house, through the through the plumbing, through the wiring. And it's like, ah, yikes. Oh, and it says uh, one of the safer places to be is in a car. And it's not because of the rubber tires on the car. What it is is the metal shell. The metal shell shunts all the electricity away from the people inside the car. So the car is the shortest and quickest way for electricity to get to ground. Uh, it, they talk about who's most at risk in lightning in the outdoors. And there's a top 10 list of the big things that people or whatever that are going to be injured. Basketball players. <laughs> that's one of them, but that's four. <laughs> so the top three are people fishing, people boating, and people camping. We're doomed. <laughs> and then it starts talking about People, outdoor sports, soccer, basketball, people at the beach, farmers, uh, people riding bikes. You know, there's a, then it just kind of starts getting silly with people doing yard work and stuff. But the top three are fishing, boating, and camping. <laughs> it's like, yikes. Anyways, uh, there's, there's one thing that I've always calculated the distance to a storm incorrectly. I thought you just counted by seconds, and that's how far away it is. But according to the government website, you count... In seconds, the time between the flash and the thunder. And the thunder. So you count in seconds, and if you, you divide by three to give you kilometers, and you divide by five to give you miles distance. Well, see, I never used it to, to calculate distance. I've always used it, you know, when the lightning strikes, then you count, and then when the thunder hits, right, you get your number. Yes. And then when it does it again, if it's longer time, it, it, it's I've going always away. just used it to... Is it coming towards you or leaving? But but that's also inaccurate because you could get lightning on your side of the storm and then hear thunder and lightning on the opposite side of the storm. So it gives you a false sense of which way it's going because the lightning isn't always going to be in the center of the storm and traveling mm -hmm. with the storm. You could have lightning striking up to 20 kilometers away from the storm itself. So it's... it's well, usually with me, as I've said before <laughs> it's usually on my side of the storm <laughs> aiming for me exactly <laughs> so, so in my case it's pretty accurate <laughs> but it was nice to actually get correctly in my head the the proper calculation so i just i sketched it out here like if you if you count uh, if you see lightning or you, if you see lightning and then say 10 seconds later you uh hear the thunder so 10 seconds divided by three that's 3.3 kilometers away or 10 seconds divided by five, that's two miles away. So it's it's a good uh, idea to see how far the storm is away from you. And like you said, it, it, over the long or longer period of time, you can gauge whether it's coming closer or going farther. And for the most part, the storm is going to be within a, you know, 10 kilometer or so radius of the lightning and the, and the storm cell itself. Well, I guess if you figure that out, the distance... If you want to get all mathematical and whatnot, and you know your wind speeds and all that, you can probably figure out how fast it's going to be till it hits you too. This is true. If you wanted to get into all of mm -hmm. that. So you could get more prepared instead of squatting down for like two hours and it's, uh, you just kind of gauge to when this thunder and lightning might hit you. Oh, and they say if lightning is going to, there is a primer before lightning strikes at your location the the air becomes charged as that connection starts to grow between the ground and the storm cloud itself your hair will actually stand on end and it'll, it'll feel you'll feel a buzzy electrical power around you so you know if you feel that lightning is going to come within the next few seconds in your direct vicinity have you seen my hair do <laughs> or lack thereof but you got hair in your neck <laughs> 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 I will never feel the static charge of my hair. There is no warning for bald people. <laughs> I, I'm doomed. <laughs> doomed, I say. Doomed. No warning on the water, in a boat, next to rocks. Uh, I'm fishing. I'm doomed. <laughs> they, uh, one of the little thing they say is, uh, for lightning safety, there's a little quotation here says when thunder roars go indoors 
Yeah, well, if you're out camping or canoeing and if you're on the water, like, I don't know, sometimes you're crossing a big lake and it's like, well, it's going to be taking me three hours to get to the other side. The thunderstorm comes along and you're in the middle of the lake. <laughs> you can only paddle so fast. Yeah, I mean, that's when watching the weather and checking the yes, forecasts yes. that become really important. You know, when, you're, when you know you've got big lakes to cross, then, you know, and I mean, you, you generally know as well when the clouds start moving in and, it's time you know, to go. It yeah. goes from, um, well, Mark Rubino of uh, Mark in Mark the, park, the Park. He's always had that when, when the clouds lose their features and it becomes like one giant sheet of oh, cloud. Yes, yes. Then you know you're going to get something, be it rain, thunder. And then, of course, the darker it gets as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but as long as they're big, chunky, fluffy clouds, and you know what, I, that's sort of, uh, been working for when I, when I'm out with him and whatnot. And he says, yeah, no, we got nothing to worry about. And, and, uh, yeah, sure enough. But then when you start losing all the features in the clouds, that's where I was looking for features in the clouds, then all of a sudden you get circuit in the rain and, and exactly. whatnot. So if you're paddling, then you need to know, okay, well, this is what the weather's going to, and it's that comes with experience too, yes. right? Yes, it does. Yeah. Get off the water, set up your camp, a tarp, whatever, and be prepared for, for what's coming. And, uh, yeah. And especially when it comes to the lightning and stuff, you, you really can't take that, uh, lightly. Derek, do you remember your first canoe trip? I, well, I remember my first one in Ontario. And had you been canoe tripping before that? I have. I, like, I grew up, uh, I did some canoeing as a kid and, and, uh, out in British Columbia, I did, uh, a few trips. And when you got back from those trips, uh, what, what were your thoughts? What do you mean? What were my thoughts? Like, how do I go through a trip and relive it? Or what do you? What do you mean, how are my thoughts? Your thoughts as in while you were out there versus when you're back home. Well, I usually feel a, a whole lot less stressed, a whole lot more relaxed. And, uh, you know, you always contemplate how the trip went and what you can, what gear you might need for the next time and contemplating this, that, the other thing. But it's usually just, I just find I'm a lot more relaxed when I get back. Well, I was pointed in the direction of Project Canoe. Mm-hmm. And what Project Canoe does, it's based out of Toronto. I guess uh, it used to be based out of Tomogamy for a number of years. But it's based out of Toronto now. And it uses the outdoors, uh, including wilderness canoeing, to create a transformative environment in which young people facing barriers develop life skills, social competencies, and resilience uh, thereby fostering their own personal success. Hmm. And that's right from their, their website and their, their brochures and that. Project Canoe was founded back in 1977, and they say it's served over 3,700 youth in, in that time. Now, what they do is they take various youth, they have, they have a, a screening pro, process. Is it geared towards troubled youth or is it geared towards well, they, anybody? They just say youth facing barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It sounds similar to the sort of thing that Kevin Kellen does. He, and that's exactly what I was thinking. Troubled youth and. Yeah. And that's, that, I was going through their, their webpage and their brochures and, and whatnot and what they do. And a lot of it is exactly what. When we talk to Kevin Callan, it's it's the same sort of thing he's saying there about getting the young people out there, and um, you know, uh, getting them out there and teaching them, mm-hmm. you know, self reliance and having fun and and out of out of the city, and that's part of what they say is they're you know provide provide a positive experience in a safe group setting. Um, healthy adult role models, which would be the staff members that take them on these canoe trips. And they focus on the youth aged 13 to 18 who live with a variety of barriers. They They don't really say what the barriers are Um, that that I've seen anyway. The, I I would think underprivileged, I would think crime area, like 
high at crime risk, areas at, at risk, risk youth. Yeah, and that's that's the 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 word that uh, Kevin, Callen Kevin Callen always said was at risk, and it sounds like that's exactly what this is. Um, so check them out, and they basically take these kids on their canoe trips and get them engaged because they say when they're engaged in doing this sort of thing, that's when they, they really start to learn and, and get self-confidence and figure stuff out. And they're saying when, when they're, when they're engaged, they feel that they're respected and they're valued, trusted, feel appreciated. They feel they're working, um, in friendly environments and involved in meaningful ways. Their voices are being heard and they're given a chance to be involved, make decisions, gain leadership skills and see their ideas realized, which, I mean, when you know you're on a canoe trip, when you're part of that group, you know, and you're doing stuff, you're getting, you know, be it setting up tents and tarps or making dinner or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're learning things there. Uh, you're, you're involved and, and in a big way. You're engaging them and you're, I guess, getting them out of their shell and showing yeah. them there's other ways to do things. Yeah. And there's a social aspect to it. Uh, and as they're doing this, they're seeing there's a change and the progress is happening, what they're doing. Um, and they're in a place where they have ownership and are in control, right? They're, they're not being told what to do and, you know, they're, they're being taught stuff out of their natural environment. Yeah. And it really seems that this is um, an excellent way to teach the kids to do stuff. Now, they have, and I was just looking at their stuff here, there's two types of canoe trips that Project Canoe does. There's the five-day foundation trip, and there's the eight-day experience trip. So Project Canoe runs these wilderness canoe programs um and they the, the the focus is on the basic canoeing and camping skills as well as environmental awareness and um social social leadership skills cooperative decision making teamwork conflict resolution that sort of stuff and while they're on these trips they you know, they, they make it as comfortable and as easy as possible for these kids to learn these new skills and gain the new, you know, these skills for dealing with conflict and other difficulties they all face in their day-to-day -day lives. And yet it really, it really brought back this, this discussion we had with Kevin Callan mm -hmm. and what he's doing. And this is, uh, I mean, of course, this isn't done through schools or anything like that. This is done through a private charitable organization. Yeah, so they, what, they, they ask for volunteers, you can donate equipment to them, you can become a supporter financially. Yep. Now, in your research for this, did it say how they locate the kids? They have a um, very strict uh, referral process. So it is by referral. Yeah, it includes, uh, what do they say, it includes a completion of a detailed application by the youth and their guardian and a personal interview, hmm. right? So, I mean, they're on their website, um, uh, canoe.org, there is a spot where you can apply. Oh, okay. Right? So you can go on and you can apply for it. And then, you know, you got to fill out. And I guess I guess that just sort of, you well, you know what? You don't really need this. You, you can go to a regular, mm -hmm. you know, summer camp. It just sort of, you know, gears it towards the kids that could really use this experience. Interesting. And, I mean, I've talked about before when I, I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up outdoors, you know, and do all the camping and the hiking and all, and all that, the fishing and everything. And then when I moved to Toronto, the number of people I met that had never been outside of Toronto. Yeah, it's surprising, right? eh? It really, it really, really is. City people tend to enclose themselves in the city experience. Which I thought was interesting too when I first moved here because I too grew up in the outer doors and, and experiencing everything. And, and then when I moved here, it's like, wow, these people are really sheltered. Yeah. And yeah, you know, you start looking at this and their foundation course, which is the five day trip, um, is just for youth who want to learn the basics of canoe tripping. They'll learn to paddle, portage, discover new things about themselves. And, you know, it's just creating 
getting them out there, showing them this is what it is, getting them involved and doing stuff, you know, maybe making decisions and, and helping mm-hmm. with the leadership, stuff like that. Give them a little eye-opener, so to speak. Uh, the eight-day one, the experience, and that's designed um, for the youth that want the opportunity to learn about themselves while experience all that Algonquin Park has to offer. Mm-hmm. So you take them up in Algonquin Park for eight days on a canoe trip into the backcountry. You know, it, they've got to step up and, you know, um, be involved. Yes. Right? And they say the staff work with the youth in setting goals for the trip and assist them in learning basic canoe tripping skills. And it looks like they do three separate dates for the five-day trip and then three separate dates um, for the eight-day trips. And now, again, it's all charitable donations and stuff like that that they're, they're relying on. And I know we do, they do have, um, so Paddlepalooza. Is it Paddlepalooza is coming up? Mm-hmm. And so that event is going to benefit the... Uh... Yeah, and it, yeah, it's, it's for Project Canoe. Um, it's at the Monarch Tavern. Uh, June 24th, and um, that's in Toronto here, uh, Paddlepalooza. Yeah, they're suggesting, you know, like, pay what you can, but 15 bucks is what is we're the hoping for. Yeah, and it's, it's pay at the door, and there's no advanced sales or anything. But uh, you show up at the, the ta- Monarch Tavern, live music, and help raise funds for uh, Project Canoe. Uh, it sounds like something that's, that's really good, because I know... Like I say, I was lucky enough to be able to, you know, do this growing up. Mm-hmm. And not everyone's like that. So to help these people that, as I say, with barriers. Um, Break down barriers, expand the kids' horizons. Yeah, I think. a new experience. I think this is fantastic. I'm going to do some more research into it and follow up with the people and maybe yes. pay them a visit. But, uh, yeah, check out canoe.org and check them out. And uh, if you're looking for you know, a good cause that uh, helps kids out, then check out this uh, Paddlepalooza and, uh, you know, maybe donate some money and go have a couple of beverages and listen to some good music. Okay, we were talking about the the lightning strikes and the fires and everything that are happening. And before we've talked about other, um, basically, disasters that could happen on a canoe trip. And one of the things... I know I've had to deal with before is um, keeping care of uh, wounds, cuts, that sort of thing, uh, minor burns, nothing major on uh, on, on long canoe trips. Um, but I know somebody, you know, we were on one canoe trip and somebody sliced their finger open pretty good. So, you know, a couple of weeks we're making sure it's cleaned and bandaged and, you know, not getting infected. Um couple of small burns on the on the hand nothing major uh sunburn that sort of thing cuts bruises nothing too major now we discussed you know we carry your first aid kit and i know you were talking about uh first aid kits and that you're looking into a new one um but we also discussed that depending on the kind of canoe tripping you're doing or kayaking for a day or whatever, that uh, what you took in your first aid kit really was different. Yes, well, there's different needs for different trips. And invariably, on any given trip, even if the trip goes well, there's always going to be the minor things, right? You get a, you, you bump into a branch and you get a scrape, or, or you, you pick up a hot pot and you burn your thumb tip, or... You know, anything. You get uh, something as simple as getting a blister in your foot under your water sandals, right? It, there's always something. Even if a trip goes good, there's always something minor, right? You know, too much drinking the night before, maybe you wake up with a headache. <laughs> so you need some Advil type thing, right? So it, one of the things that I'm doing this year, and I usually try to do it every year, but I missed last year, is uh, going through my medical kit. And I, I, I have a fairly compact one, and it's for I use it for long trips and short trips. I've I've managed to get it nice and compact. I started with the basic. It's, uh, if you, it doesn't matter where you shop, you're going to find these things. If St. John Ambulance or if you go to uh, REI or MEC or Sale or any of these, any outdoor store, they have, they're, they're yellow 
a fabric covered kits. I have the Ultralight 0.7. And there a lot of these kits are are fairly in depth, but of course, you know, I bought mine and I automatically started adding stuff to it, right? Which I do as well. Yeah, because it doesn't always it covers the basics, but I always there's I always like to add like for example, Robaxa set. You know, you hurt your back, your sore muscles or whatever, the Robaxa set helps out. You know, I've, I add my own Advil, I prefer Advil over Tylenol. And then there's, you know, cold medication. I put, add in antihistamines to, you know, if there's any allergic reactions and bug bites and whatever. Like you can put it on Afterbite or you can take an antihistamine. They both basically do the same thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I found mine, that's that's what I do. It's, I mean, I do... I. Don't bring the Robaxa set or anything, but, uh, and I'm, I'm a Tylenol guy. Uh, <laughs> the Tylenol sinus is, is worked wonders for me. Um, I, I also add extra bandages that I know I'm going to use, like the band-aids, um, you know, for fingers or whatnot, uh, just over time knowing you need the blisters, you know, where the blisters are happening and, and band-aids that are going to fit. You know that the the, the inside of your thumb, forefinger, exactly, or your area. knuckle or fingertips, because it's hard to. It's really hard. It's it's amazingly hard to bandage a knuckle or a fingertip with normal bandages. So I, I like to have a couple uh, knuckle bandages and fingertip bandages in the kit too, just because you know if you're doing stuff around the campsite, you're gonna skin a knuckle, you're gonna do whatever, right? So it's nice yeah. to have that protected to stop either infection or to stop the bleeding and and whatnot. Sanitary, not sanitary, uh, like iodine type wipes. Yes. They're big to have. And yes. I've got, I got a whole bunch of those in there because, I mean, you can wash your hands and whatnot, but, um, yeah, if you get a, if you get a cut and especially a really good cut, then you need to make sure you keep it clean. You want to stop infections and that there's nothing worse than, you know, you get a little scrape and next thing you know, it's, it's raw, angry, red and throbbing. It's like, oh no, it's like, I, now I'm going to need antibiotics type thing. Right. Yeah. And if you're back in a you know, few days into your trip in the backcountry, you're not getting out quickly. No. To get that sort of thing. And you know, all the all the scummy water and at the at the portages that you have to walk through and you're gonna get on your, your feet and your hands and, and whatnot. It's it's you're you're asking for an infection. You know, if you don't wanna drink this water, last thing you wanna do is have it go through an open cut or an open wound. So you wanna you wanna be able to wipe it with antiseptic wipe or use iodine whatever right you want to keep the infection at bay right so there's there's i was in looking up and and for first aid and adventure medical kits there's there's the basic items that you want to carry and a lot of these things uh, as we've already discussed there's antiseptic wipes you want to have an antibacterial ointment or uh you want to have uh any compound tincture benzoin I, I i use iodine you want to have your basic adhesive bandages you want to have uh, your butterfly bandages knuckle and fingertip you want to have gauze that doesn't stick to an open wound if you're out there and you actually nick yourself in the leg with an axe you want to be able to stop the bleeding you want to be able to prevent anything from getting into the cut you want to be able to bandage it to make sure that you can get out safely Right. You don't want it to get worse, infected or, or whatever. And like I, I have uh, moleskins for any blisters that you might get. There's nothing more comfortable than having a having a blister that breaks open and then you got to keep walking with those wet uh, water shoes against this blister. And there's nothing worse than that. It's like I tell you. So, you know, there's, there's all these basics, right? Antihistamines, ibuprofens, insect sting relief treatments. You know, and splints. It like I, I don't carry splints. I I'm gonna use a stick or something. Yeah, right? if I'm I the same way. Break a finger or break a leg. You can always wrap your a paddle around your leg to, to keep your the broken leg still, right? So a lot of the stuff you can leave at home for, for saving space. But you know, the basic stuff is to keep infections at bay and be able to close up a cut and be able to seal a cut from, from anything getting into the wound, right? Yeah. Um, but then from there you get something a bit more comprehensive. Yes. You start adding stuff. You start adding specialized wound coverings or like, uh, aloe vera or whatever you can get. Uh, I was, I was looking the other day and let me see if I can find it. It's, uh, it's called cool gel and St. John ambulance talks about it. There it is. Cool blaze. So they, they have these, uh, cool blaze uh, ointments and dressings 
And these are good for fire burns or really severe sunburns. What it does is uh, it, it calms the burn area, it soothes the burn area. There's some stuff in it to take away the pain and whatnot, as well as it cools it. It's uh, almost like one of those uh, liquid or those wet fire blankets that you uh, you would see in an arena or, or in a first aid room. Hmm. So this this stuff is, I'm going to have to get some of that this year. It's uh, It'd be great for, I've burnt myself a few times and on the hands just working around a campfire. I tend to be klutzy sometimes if I'm not paying attention. So it's good to have something like this to to keep that either a sunburn or whatnot at bay. Right. And the regular stuff like the iPads and um yeah I'm not I don't so, really worry about stuff like yeah. that I can use a normal gauze if there's an eye damage or whatever and I you know I am first aid trained so I know how to you know create that donut ring to cover the eye if you have a, anything protruding or whatnot right yeah so you know what and and the other big thing that I mean you talk about the the equipment you have in there but a, a book a small first aid book, and you can get them. They fit right inside your, yes, you your, can. Your a little guide. Saint John Ambulance has a small. It's like two inches by three inches. It costs a dollar if you order from uh, Saint John Ambulance. It's a very basic. It does your. It gives you your basic information, and in the back of the book, there's there's a couple pages where you can write notes on a first aid incident. Yeah, and that way you know what's what you've done and what's a happened. History, and, yeah. exactly. Yeah. In keeping with a few conversations we had on this show past episodes, there's also something that I've started carrying just in the last year. Is uh, It's a tick key. It's a, It's got a little wedge. You can pull ticks off. I've also added a, a fine pair of tweezers for pulling ticks off. Uh, I've, I've added a small... It's. I bought these little... It's, it's like a business card, but it's a magnifying glass. So I've added that because ticks can be pretty small. So there's things that I've mostly learning i've learned a lot of stuff since we started this show <laughs> we're doing a lot of research on everything people at work today were asking me why are you researching lightning <laughs> i was like oh i don't know <laughs> just in case <laughs> i need a superpower and there's a few things i found this checklist from rei and there's a lot of things in here that i hadn't really thought about like a whistle the throw a peeless whistle inside your first aid kit i always had one tied to my uh life jacket anyways but hey why not have if your if your medical kit can fit these things it's like you know a whistle or needle nose pliers or like a lot of these stuff i'm not going to put needle nose pliers in but no but i mean you keep that if you've got yourself a uh leatherman tool exactly right the multi-tools yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. duct tape yeah I've, I've used that on um uh blisters before but uh yeah so you know what check your first aid kit Make sure you're comprehensive and you can have a small one or a larger one, but just go through your first aid kits. Make sure you have what you think you need for a short trip or for a long trip and uh, keep yourself safe out there. Upcoming events. Since 2006, the Real Paddling Film Festival has been showcasing the very best in paddling films. The tour screens in more than 120 cities around the world and may be coming soon to a location near you. On May 25th in Dayton, Ohio at the Neon, hosted by Massey Creek Paddlers and Tom Foolery Outdoors. On June 3rd in Huntsville, Ontario at the Algonquin Theatre. Sean from Paddling Adventures Radio will be there with the hosts of the night, Algonquin Outfitters. On June 4th in Manchester, Tennessee, hosted by Manchester Coffee County Conference. On June 10th, Canmore, Alberta at the Black Box Theatre, hosted by Sawback Alpine Adventure and Bow Valley Kayak Club. Visit RealPaddlingFilmFestival.com for times and locations. Pacific Paddling Symposium, which is May 27th through 29th in Victoria, B.C. They call this symposium the Kayak Camp for Adults, where participants and instructors have the chance to connect and play. It brings together the sea kayaking community for an inspiring three-day experience that focuses on skills, education, leadership, heritage, safety, and camaraderie. Visit PacificPaddlingSymposium.ca for more details. Mountain Equipment Co-op Toronto Paddle Fest 2016 runs June 11th through 12th at the Sunnyside Beach in Toronto. Come out and find gear and get tips for stand-up paddleboard, kayaking, and canoeing. Meet fellow paddlers and demo anything that floats. Visit events.mec.ca for more information. The Boundary Waters Expo runs June 11th through 12th 
in Cook County, Minnesota. Your Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Adventure starts here. Feature speakers, exhibitors, gear demos, and a campfire discussion led by Cliff Jacobson. It is being held at the Seagull Lake Public Landing on the Gunflint Trail. Visit cookcounty.com for more details. National Paddling Week, June 10th through 19th. National Paddling Week wants to encourage as many Canadians as possible to get into a canoe, a kayak, or get onto a board and be counted during this extended week to show our national commitment to the fun, the benefit, and the challenge of paddling. Check paddleweek.ca for events near you. Paddlepalooza, June 24th, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. at the Monarch Tavern in Toronto. Come out to the Monarch Tavern for live music and help raise funds to send youth on a canoe trip this summer. This event is in support of Project Canoe. Go to canoe.org and look under events for more details. And finally, National Canoe Day in Canada on June 26th. People and groups across Canada come together on or around June 26th every year to celebrate canoeing and paddle sports. How will you be celebrating? Visit nationalcanoeday.net for more details. You've been listening to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Specht. We'll see you next time.